Uh, sometimes you find yourself in a difficult situation uh, or circumstance. Um, maybe you do find yourself in a place where you've been treated unjustly, and it seems like nobody's watching out for you. I don't, I don't know if you've ever been there, but maybe it's been in a workplace where maybe like somebody uh, in the workplace or in your job, they don't like you for some reason. Maybe they look at you and, and they think uh, that you're doing really well, and so they want to undermine uh, whatever you're doing well at some level and try to maybe get you fired. Uh, there are a long list of things that kind of happen. You think of somebody uh, like the young man in, in the story, you know, in Daniel's story, in his life. This young man, he goes into a place of prominence. Uh, actually, uh, he's kind of at different times like his friends are thrown into a, a fiery furnace. And then later in his later life, He's thrown into a lion's den, and he's uh, in that situation because people are envying after what he has and what he possesses, and you think, like, those kind of circumstances go on all the time. If you're honest, I mean, you've seen that or experienced that. Maybe you could go back to a time when you were in school, and uh, you had a, a group of people around you, and there was somebody that had it out for you, and so they begin to spread rumors about you and, and say all these things, and you're like... Uh, not able to kind of fight against it and you wonder how am I going to how am I going to make these things right and sometimes you take it into your own hands uh, that happens a lot uh, in in my home uh, I probably don't want to always admit to when it happens maybe on from my side but with my boys they'll get into it over something and you'll be like this is mine and you can't take it you know and the other day or regularly they say not nice not nice and so they'll scream at each other, not nice, not nice, not nice. And they're fighting against one. They're saying like, nobody in this house is nice. You know, it's almost like this explosion that takes place. And I think it's one of those things where oftentimes when we think, if we think that we can somehow like uh, get back at that person who's not nice, we will. And when you're a kid, you like ball up your fists and say, it's on. Uh, maybe when you're an adult, you begin to speak ill of that person. They're not nice. They're not nice. So you get people around you, not nice. They're not nice. And you look for ways to do that over and over. And so you build this coalition to attack someone. So you maybe text or you call or you say... Not nice, not nice. And so eventually what happens is you think, I will get them back for what they've done to me. David finds himself in a battle. And sometimes I think it's hard when you're reading about David because it's almost like uh, it was interesting when uh, Lanny was just reading there, like it thundered, you know. It's like the armies are gathering around us, you know. But, but we sometimes think about what's taking place and you think, are, we don't really feel like uh, we are in a war necessarily, and we may not recognize kind of what is taking place when we're in the midst of things. But, but sometimes we'll look at David and we'll think, yeah, look, man, chariots were surrounding him. I don't have those. Maybe it's not as practical for me to read a psalm like this. But I think it is important that we say we do find ourselves in situations that really are outside of our control. And we want to rage against them. That's just the reality. We want to throw the gloves off, bare fist it, and fight it out if we could. 
And oftentimes when we say there's no possible way for us to do so, then we do get bitter and we harbor bitterness and we long for justice. But we're almost like looking for a way that someday, like the Count of Monte Cristo, I will repay all those people for what they've done. And in reality, the, the fact is, as the scripture says, you run to the Lord, he will repay. And I think that's something for us that should comfort us. Are we appealing to God or coming to God and saying, Lord, you are the one who will vindicate your people. And are we trusting that? Or, or is there something, a calm assurance that we have that he will do so? Now, David makes three appeals. And I think it will be helpful for you to see that. In verse 1, you see, he says, hear. Verse 6, incline. Verse 13, arise. Those three things, you'll see those kind of on display. Now, what do we learn from these appeals? In the first, David appeals to God, uh, you know, really almost, he appeals to God's righteousness because he says, I am walking in a right way. In the second appeal, he appeals to the love of God and the wickedness of his foes. In the third appeal, David appeals for divine action. In the first and third, when you're looking at this, in the first and third, you'll see kind of this affirmation that he makes on a personal level. He is confident that God will hear him. And we'll look at that as we move through. So I think we find ourselves sometimes wrongly attacked. I think sometimes there's this great battle going on and we don't even know that it's there. I think there are times when we find ourselves and we know it's there and we're facing it. And rather than uh, taking that before the Lord, we decide we will fight the battle. And we will go after those people in whatever way possible. And sometimes we don't even know that we're doing it. So I think it's important that we understand that. Now... One other thing I think that you could learn, so if you're already lost with me, come back to me real quick. In Psalm 17, one of the things that you see is the psalmist is making arguments to God. When we say arguments, sometimes we think, oh, that's what happens at home where we get into a fight with each other and we're arguing. It's not that. He is, he is building a case and he is arguing his position. It's, um, it's not just saying, this is what I need. He's actually building a case for why God should answer. And I think that's important for us to consider. Charles Haddon Spurgeon often like encourages people in this. And he says, it's almost like he recommended arguments. He said, not because God needs to be persuaded to help his children. He does not, but because arguments force us to carefully think through what we are asking and to sharpen our request. Spurgeon said of David, David would not have been a man after God's own heart if he had not been a man of prayer. He was a master in the sacred art of supplication. He knew how to go before the Lord and he did it bringing forth his case and that's what you kind of see here. I think sometimes we don't take enough time to effectively Learn to pray in such a way. Now, verses 1 through 5. Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. 
From your presence let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me and you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man, by, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. David is praying to God because he knows. That, and, and here's the thing. This is one of the beautiful things about like, uh, and sometimes when we think about psalms, we don't think about them being sung. But one of the amazing things is, is like he is reflecting. You will look if you're, if you were to sit down like today and go home and say, okay, I'm going to take Psalm 17 and I'm going to find out what I learn about God. What, what can I know about God as a result of being in this study? One thing is he knows that he is the just judge of the universe. He is making an appeal to him, a cry for help, because he knows who God is. He is the one who is in charge of the universe. He is the one who will make things right. He is the final and ultimate judge of the universe. So he is making his appeal to him because there is no higher court. That, that, that to be able to, to, to enter into that courtroom where the tr- truly the decisions are made. Where there truly is the ability to make things right. He is crying out to the one who reigns and rules over all and who is completely just and right. He is coming to him because he knows that he is in control. But not only that, that he is all wise, all knowing, all just, all right. In every aspect, he can come to him knowing that God is for what is right and what is true. So he comes before the Lord. And makes his appeal. I don't think you would say, David, like if you were to look at his Psalms, you would not say that he would think that he was a perfect man. He was not one of those self-righteous, like nuts, if you will, that thought that like he never messed up or never struggled with sin or couldn't admit it if he did. He's one, he understood that. There are things you'll see over and over in the Psalms where he understands that. But in this case, in building this case, with the issue that is going on at thi- in this moment, he is on the side, uh, uh, the just side, and he has been attacked. So I think he understands that and sees, sees that. In verse 2, he basically says, You are the just God who reigns on the throne. Vindicate me. It's one of those, um, it, it's almost this idea of you have to liberate me, God. You are the one who's going to have to display, put on display your power to make things right for me. So I, I think it's just, it, it's a helpful thing to see that. Now, um, some think that this is closely associated uh, to a time when he was being chased by Paul. I mean, Saul. <laughs> Saul has chased after him and has unjustly treated David on many occasions, but he is pursuing him. And really, it's almost like, David, at this moment, you're saying he's an enemy of the state. And so he is being unjustly treated. Saul is, is coming after him. It's, it's, some people understand this. And if, if it is a passage from like 1 Samuel 23, what happens is the Philistines come in and someone comes and gets Saul and says, like, you've got to go fight the Philistines. And so Saul has to leave and then he's going to come back later. But I think it's interesting. If that is what ta- is taking place, you see, 
David is in the right way, certainly we know that Saul was in a state of rebellion against God and coming after to persecute um, David himself. In verse 3 he states, you have tried my heart. The idea there is you have looked into the innermost part of my being. You examine this condition, this situation, what is going on, and you can see my motives, desires, and passions, and you know I'm in the right. Lord, you've, you've done that. You understand that. He looks into my heart. You, you, it's almost like he, he examines you in the depths of your being. But not only that, then it says, it, it's like he visited me in the night. Oftentimes, and I don't know if this is exactly what the psalmist, the idea there, but I think the night is often synonymous with um, being in a secret kind of way, like the hidden things. It's like he is coming. You know, it's one thing to say, like, no, nobody knows what you're really thinking. You know, what's really going on. There's some people that are really, like, kind of quiet people, so they don't speak, but they have thoughts. And so he says, like, you've looked into my heart. Not only that, you've examined what I have been doing when no one else was watching so he's building a case for God and saying I am walking in an upright way you are testing me you've tested my actions my heart my words you're testing me now if you um, again going back to that idea with Saul chasing him like I said Saul leaves and then comes back and when he comes back Saul comes to this cave where David and his men are hidden behind it, and Saul does not know it. And so David slips in, if you remember, and he cuts a, a, a corner, the corner of his robe off. He doesn't kill him. He does that. And 1 Samuel 24 kind of explains that. It says, And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where, where there was a cave. This is Saul. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to, to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut, cut off a corner of Saul's robe, and afterwards David's heart was, uh, struck him, because he had cut off the corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose and left the cave and went on his way. So one of those things that you see here is, and again, this is why some people see this psalm so closely tied to what's going on. He's not walking in the way of the wicked. He is not fighting for himself. He had the opportunity to kill Saul. He really could have done so without ever raising his own hand. Like he could have allowed his men just to go their own way. To address the situation without him doing one thing. And yet you see him not doing this. He's walking in an upright way. He's presenting a case before God. And even if you say, well, I don't know if this psalm's tied to this. You could still say in that picture, that's what you're picturing. With his words, he is doing what is right. With his actions, he does not take his life. And so you, you're going to see kind of that. And even, even when he did one thing, he felt like a grievous over uh, what he had done. And so I think there's many different ways that we can fall in sin when we have been wronged. We may want to do evil. We may never act upon it, but long to do evil to those who've done us wrong. 
We may have bitterness and wickedness springing up within us. We may use our words to attack, to attack others because we think in some way they've wronged us or we didn't like what they did or whatever it might be. So we might use our words. We may use our actions to crush them. But we see David here in the midst of those struggles. He doesn't pick up all those tools he could use for evil, but rather runs to the Lord and says, Lord, you have to address these things. Now, when Jesus was faced with great enemies, I want you to turn with me real quick to 1 Peter chapter 2. And I want you to see this because I think hopefully we will be more like the Lord. We want to be more like him. We want to examine like his heart. And we, we hopefully this would maybe help us in some way. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject to the Lord's sake for every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent to, by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to to, to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if... When you sin and are beaten for it, you endure. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is gracious in the sight of God. For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was there deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. See that? And see, I think that that's, again, this picture here of David entrusting himself to God. He's bringing a case before God and saying, God, I'm walking in an upright way. I'm walking in a just way. All these things are taking place, and yet I'm coming to follow. I'm going to follow after you. I'm going to seek you and, and entrust myself to you. Now, the second thing we see, the second appeal is to the love of God and really emphasizing the wickedness of his foes. Now, you notice what it says, in, it, it really, in verse 6, like at the end there, O oh God, incline your ear to me, hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior, of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. David calls out to God, and he re, he, he's reminding him of his love, of his steadfast love. You know, the Lord even told us to ask and seek and knock. And he's coming before the Lord and he's saying, Lord, I know who you are. Not only are you just and right, but you're graciously like compassionate and you're loving. And you have this steadfast love that you pour out upon your people. He's reminding him of truths that were found even with Moses in in Exodus 34 when the Lord says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He's going back to the promises of God. He's going back to the character of God. And he's saying, not only are you just and holy and right, but you're a loving God. 
You're a merciful God. And so as he builds his case, he cries out to God and says, Lord, this is who you are. There's a chapter, and you could like mark this in your Bible. We don't have time to read it all this morning. But in Psalm 136, it speaks of God because he is good. It speaks of him as, as a good God, as the God of gods, as the Lord of lords, as, as the one who's done great wonders, as the creator of the universe, as the savior of his people. And he builds all this case for who God is. And he says at the end, the psalmist, at the end of each statement, he says, for your steadfast love endures forever. So he, he's, the psalmist knows that like, over and over and over, the Bible is, is telling us that God is steadfast in His love for His people. And so David is appealing to God as this just God. He is a, and he's, he's saying, I'm walking in a just way. God, you know this. You see this, and you're the one who is the judge of the universe. You make things right. I, I'm coming before you, God, because you are a loving God. That, and you love your people, and you've shown your love throughout human history we've seen that on display and he comes to him in that way now verse 8 as you keep moving here it says keep me as the apple of your eye hide me in the shadow of your wings it's again another picture he's saying god like the apple of your eye of course we immediately think about how our eyes even like from a natural standpoint if something comes towards them they close, you know, in, in a lot of different like manufacturing places, people are uh, called upon to wear safety glasses to protect the eye. It's this picture of protection. Lord, protect me as he understood as he looked out and he said, like, the eye is something everyone wants to protect. We do all these things to do so. And so he reminds him, keep me in that way or in the shadow of your wings where the idea, the picture there. I think is another idea of protection. And, uh, and it really is looking back to a picture in Deuteronomy of God doing so. But it, it's, it's, a, it's a keeping them uh, and protecting them. He says, I am vulnerable. I'm in need of you, Lord. You protect me. You watch over me. Verses 9 through 12. From the wicked who do me violence. So he's saying, Lord, protect me from those who are trying to destroy me. They're trying to... Uh, really undermine what you're doing in my life at some level. You've got to protect me and watch over me. From those who do do violence, my my deadly enemies who surround me, they want to destroy him. They have no pity. They They are like this. They're ruthless. And they're seeking to do him in. It's one of those, it's just this picture over and over of saying like, they are about the destruction of David. They have now surrounded our steps. They've set their eyes to cast us to the ground. They want to destroy them. They want to annihilate David and those with him. Verse 12, he is like a lion eager to tear as a a lion lurking in ambush. You know, we studied the the revelation. And last time I was talking to a guy and he and I were talking about um, if, if, you know, if we didn't die, if we were able to live like forever you know or whatever on this earth or or if you like you look back in some of those early days in genesis where these people are living long periods of time and and civilization is like expanding but could you imagine how much you would accomplish if you were to live 500 years or a thousand years you say i wouldn't accomplish nothing well that's unfortunate but if you rightly understood what we are to do what we're called to do 
like how much you would know and understand and how much things would advance in the skills that God has given you. And we were talking about that and we were talking about how really when you think about Satan and how many years he has been able to think and and consider ways in which he might destroy the church. We studied that in the Revelation where he is seeking to devour the church. And he's had all these years to to learn about humanity and to understand what makes them tick and how to bring about this perfect plan to try to undermine what God is doing. And you think about those kind of things and you think, man, uh, we have an enemy that's great and he's called a lion, you know. And so we understand that, that there's this battle going on. And I think sometimes for David, when he has people surrounding him, it's a little easier to spot. Sometimes for you and I, you may wake up week after week and never really understand how great a battle you're really in. You, you might be, because the enemy is so stealthy and he's hidden in the grass. And you don't even know, you're just walking around like, a, like nothing's going on. You're walking around like a dead man, like you're not aware, like blinded to the fact that there is one who is seeking to destroy you and he will do everything he can to turn you away from God. There there is an enemy that is so great and fierce, but he's not foolish. He doesn't always show his hand. He doesn't always show up and surround you so that you think he's coming after you. He secretly seeks after you to destroy you. He knows you intimately. And so he is about the destruction of uh, the people of God. And I think it's just important for us when we're looking at this to say the enemy that we face is so great that we may not even know sometimes that he is lurking in the shadows and he is about to seek in a way uh, to attack you and you would never even know it. Before you know it, he would have you on the ground. And I think as the church, as we're looking at this, we're saying we should be walking in a just and a right way. We have a merciful God on our side and we have an enemy that is so relentless that he never lets up. And that's where we find ourselves. And that's what we need to understand. And I was sitting there on, um, I think it was on Thursday. I was sitting uh, in like a, a, a local like car dealership waiting for a car to be fixed. And, and I, was, I was sitting there and I was uh, working on this sermon. And I remember I looked up and this lady came in with her two children. And then there was another lady there. And they were sitting there and the kids were running wild in, in the room, you know. And I'm just trying to like focus in. But the longer I'm there, the more I, I realize like what's really taking place. There is like this mom and her friend. They're on their phones, smartphones. And they're like kind of talking, but primarily on their phones. Their kids are running rampant, like running around like wild. And they're raising themselves as the parents are just sitting there. And the mom every once in a while would yell out at the kids to say like, stop, you know, hurting your sister. One of them would start crying. Or like they would start terrorizing the whole room. And she would just sit there the whole time. The only time she looked up was to take a selfie of herself and told the kids to run over there and take one with them. And then she went back to the deal. And I thought, she, like, are you a parent? 
And I was like, am I? You know, like, because I struggle with that. I'll be on my phone or checking this. Oh, I need to check it. I need to, oh, you know. And it's one of those things where it's almost like we blindly go, go through life sometimes unaware. Like, th- those kids, you, you should be fighting to help grow them up. It, it's one of those battles we have to prepare our children, our families, and our lives to live to the glory of God. There is an enemy out there lurking. And your children are sitting there and there's, they need to be prepared and they need to be helped in those ways and they need to be able to spot that. They need to see what is taking place and staying on my phone all the time is not helping prepare anyone. It's certainly not keeping me aware of what is really at stake. And so we see David appeal to, to, to the, him. He is walking in righteousness. He appeals to God as a just judge. We see him speak of the love of God and the evilness of those who they, they are um, facing. And then the third thing we see is David appeals for divine action. He asks God to arise. He feels okay with doing that. Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him, deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand, O Lord, from the men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure, they are satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their infants. And I think what we see here is one of those pictures where God, he's saying, God, you have blessed these people with this abundance and this ability to go around doing what they're doing, to bring like this kind of attack upon your own people. And you're, you, you, Lord, you need to deliver me. They have the big sword in the picture. And David is crying out, Lord, you bring your sword. I can't fight this battle. And I think that's one of the things the church will have to do and should be doing throughout history is we are saying, God, you, you have the big sword. You are the one that's the defender of your people. Bring about judgment upon those who come against us. And, and we really are crying out for His mercy to show it. And David, throughout his life, you see him with Goliath. And he goes up and he says, For the Lord's glory and in His power, I'm going to go forth and fight this giant. And it's one of those things, I think, as the church faces what they will face, not only in this present time, but throughout the ages, that is what they have to do is rest in the Lord. We personally have to come before the Lord. We cry out for Him to act on our behalf. And we say with boldness, God, You act because You are just and You are loving and You want good for Your people. You fight on our behalf. We have to keep our eyes upon the Lord and trust Him. You know, these people are the greats of the world, He's saying, are surrounding me. And Lord, you are going to fight on my behalf. One of the things about the revelation that really helped me is to see that God is going to do that. Like, I don't have to fight all my battles. I don't have to go after people when they wrong me. I can trust that in the end, God will bring about, whether it's on a global scale or in my individual life, God will. God is just and right. He will execute His justice. He loves His children And he will arise. And his enemies will be punished forever. And it's such a wonderful thing. And David knows that. In verse 6 and 15 he says, I call upon you for you will answer me. As for me, I will behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. He knows that God will act. And that is a great, a great benefit to us. One of the things as a Christian 
is that not only do we say how I want to walk in an upright way, and there's times where I do and times when I don't, but in an ultimate sense, I look to Christ. I say He is right in every way. Christ's righteousness has been put to my account, my sin placed upon Him so that I can stand before the Lord right in His sight. I can say before the Lord, I know that I am am going to be rescued. I know that I'm safe. I know that I'm redeemed because of what Christ accomplished for me. And He not only that, He prayed for me. Not only did He say in the future, but even in the present, that the Lord would be with us, that He would fight, that He would be on our side, that He would walk uh, with us through whatever we face, and that He is for us. And I think today you might walk away and say, am I walking in a right way? If not, repent. Am I trusting in the steadfast love of God? If not, start today. Am I aware of the battleground on a daily basis and am I praying and interceding on behalf of not only my behalf, but on the behalf of the church? And are you asking for His kingdom to come and His will to be done on earth as it is in heaven? Arise, Lord. And we should all be doing that and encouraging one another in it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this truth, these truths that we find here. I pray we as a church would really begin to pray in an effective way as we rely upon you to rescue us from all those who might seek to destroy us. In Christ's name, amen.